0: The scripture reading today is Genesis 22, 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his sons with him, and his son Isaac, and he and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. Then Abraham said to his son, Stay here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt, of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, the fire, and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, for me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will multiply your descendants descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their, the gate of their enemies and by the Your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. The word of the Lord.
1: So um, today I have been asked to speak to you about the Akidah, which is the name for this text of terror we just heard read. Akidah is the Hebrew word for binding. So this is the story about the binding and near sacrifice of Isaac. This most disturbing of biblical texts marks a dark turning point. In the part of the scriptures we call the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible beginning with the creation and moving through the mythological depiction of the great flood and the establishment of God's covenant with the patriarchs and matriarchs and culminating in the Moses stories, the exodus, settlement on the land, the making of the covenant, the institution of the law, all of which is Set forth in the Deuteronomic books. Now, although the Akidah is a radical disturbance, a fracturing of all in the Bible that comes before it, the disquieting questions it raises are not entirely new. From the beginning, God's relationship with the human creatur- creatures, God created from the dirt, is fraught with tension. Will Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit? Of course they will. How could they do otherwise created as they are in God's image? Will Cain be at peace with God's preference for Abel's offering of meat over his own offering of grain? How can he be when God has made himself the object of humanity's deepest desire? And then... After creating humankind in his own image, God finds them almost entirely devoid of all goodness and regrets having made them in the first place. So God sends a flood to obliterate all humankind and all the animals from the face of the earth with the exception of Noah, his family, and some randomly selected animal pairs. With the rainbow comes the first covenant, the one with Noah, where God changes his mind, not about human nature, but about God's willingness to put up with it. It was humanity's incorrigible evil that led God to unleash the flood. And in its aftermath, God promises never to send another flood precisely because humanity is so incorrigibly evil There's nothing to be done about it. In other words, God decides to lower his expectations. But as many a prophet, poet, and folk singer has observed, if not the flood, there is still the fire next time. So now we come to what are perhaps the most ancient stories in the Bible, The story is about the patriarchs and the matriarchs. The first of them is Abraham, the father of the faith, the father of three faiths, really. God commands Abraham to leave all that he knows, the house of his fathers, the gods of his people, to journey to a new place and establish a new house. And God promises to make Abraham the father of a great nation, a people chosen by God, Abraham's descendants will number as the sands of the oceans and the stars of the heavens. Yet, from the beginning, this promise is fraught with peril. Abraham's destiny seems uncertain and fragile. For Abraham and Sarah have grown old, and it is written that Sarah is barren. Today, we know it's at least as likely that Abraham was the cause of the infertility, but in antiquity, it is the woman Sarah who is called barren. Now, desperate to avoid the oblivion of childlessness, Sarah gives her slave Hagar to Abraham, and from their union comes a son, Ishmael. Though famously detached and not inclined to Overt expressions of emotion. It appears that Abraham loves this son, Ishmael, and would have been satisfied to have him as an heir. But then, against all odds and expectations, God opens Sarah's womb and she delivers the son of promise Isaac. So, in an act of ruthlessness or charitably partisanship for her son, Sarah instructs Abraham to banish Ishmael and Hagar, which in practical terms means sending them into the desert wilderness without adequate provisions or community to face a certain death. Abraham opposes this plan, but God sides with Sarah, and so Abraham, in typical obedience to God and as a foreshadowing of the Akedah, sacrifices his first son, Ishmael, along with Ishmael's mother. Now, as with Isaac, God intervenes to save them, but still they remain in exile. All this brings us to the moment at hand. fraught with fragility and plagued by setbacks all along the way, it finally seems that God's promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. Abraham has an heir, the son of his wife, and God's chosen matriarch, Sarah, because really God chooses Sarah uh, as much as God chooses Abraham. If it seems impossible before that Abraham and Sarah could have conceived a child due to their advanced age, they are now so old that not even a miracle or divine intervention would help. I mean, the the traditions differ a little as to how old Isaac is in this story. Some say as old as 37, and um, others as young as 13 or 14, but, I mean, it's way too late now. This is it. Um, Ishmael's banished. Without Isaac, the promise of descendants of land, of becoming a people chosen by God, is not but dust in the hot desert wind. And now, seemingly out of nowhere, comes the terrifying command of God to Abraham Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. And what is Abraham's response? Does he protest and argue as he has before? when he advocated for Sodom and for Lot? If he does so, the storyteller does not mention it. The text merely says that Abraham arose the next morning, saddled his donkey, gathered his son Isaac and two servants, and set out on this most fateful and awful journey. He said nothing about it to Sarah. Can you imagine what that journey must have been like? Over the years that pastors have been forced to preach on this story, <laughs> and I'm a guest pastor, you know, but but the, the, the pastors, unlike the rabbis, have moved as quickly as possible, understandably from this slow and painful three-day journey and the horrific sacrificial event to the ram caught in the thicket, the aborting of the sacrifice, the renewal of the promise, An exception is the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote an entire book on this story called Fear and Trembling. And if you know Kierkegaard, it wouldn't surprise you much. But Kierkegaard says, and I think he's got a point here, people construe the story of Abraham in another way. They extol God's grace in bestowing Isaac on him again. The whole thing was only a trial. One mounts a winged horse... The same instant one is up Mount Moriah, the same instant one sees a ram, one forgets that Abraham rode only upon an ass which walked slowly along the road, that he had a journey of three days, that he needed time to cleave the wood, to bind Isaac, and to sharpen the knife. So this year at House of Mercy, we've embarked on this unique lectionary in which we read, study, and preach on children's Bible stories. So when Russell asked me to preach this Sunday, I asked him, well, which children's Bible story will I be preaching on? I, you know, I was kind of hoping for the one where Adam names all the animals. That's like a really nice one. I, but I was surprised when I discovered that I'd be preaching on what may be the most disturbing uh, perplexing, terrifying narrative in the entire Old Testament. Now, those of you who are parents of young children, or could ask those of us like me who were at one time, when is the last time you told this story to your kids? I mean, what exactly would you say? More than any other story in the Pentateuch, indeed, more than any text in the whole Bible, I think, the Akedah provokes deep doubts about the very character of God. What distinguishes God from the demonic? It was this story, I think more than any other, that caused Martin Luther to hint that were it not for God's incarnation in Jesus Christ, nobody could tell God from the devil. I mean, it doesn't say that explicitly, but if you read Luther, there's that flavor sometimes. All attempts to frame this story within an ethical understanding of God's nature are doomed to fail. God commanded that Abraham bind, flay, and incinerate his son in order to prove his faith. And this shatters the connection between faith and ethics, doesn't it? Between obeying God and refraining from evil. Kierkegaard writes that when Abraham obeys God's command, the ethical is suspended. In the Akedah, the demands of faith so deeply contradict what is right and just. That faith and ethics are thrown into paradoxical and seemingly irresolvable tension, a tension that can be broken only by choosing between obedience to God and doing what is right in the world. How can this be? How can this be? Isn't God supposed to be the source and embodiment of the ethical? I mean, although this story takes place before the Ten Commandments are handed down, can't we assume that the Ten Commandments were already in God's mind and sort of implicit in the moral arc of the universe? Um, How many of them would Abraham have to violate in sacrificing Isaac as he was commanded to do? I mean, just for starters, the one that prohibits murder comes to mind. Although the Akedah refers to the binding of Isaac, Abraham is bound as well. He's commanded to violate a father's most sacred duty to protect his child. Even more than that, he's commanded not only to kill Isaac, but to nullify all the descendants that are to flow from Isaac, to blot out the promise and the covenant itself without descendants. Without land, the house of Abraham will be wiped off the face of the earth. Abraham will become mere dust. As the great Bible scholar Gerhard von Rod notes, to obey God in this instance means that Abraham will embark on a path to God-forsakenness. Look, I know this is a disturbing way to approach this text, but I can't see an alternative I mean, I should say parenthetically that I was very grateful for Phyllis's prayers today, especially the prayer of uh, invocation, because there was a gentleness to it and a gentle face of God that I hope we can remember as we're wrestling with this text. But here we are with this text. And I can tell you that preachers over the years have tried to find a way out of preaching what I'm preaching right now. You all, I think a lot of you, at least if you're my age or older, you know the traditional way, right? I mean, it is that God gives all life. God has a right to demand life back. So God had a right to ask the sacrifice of Abraham. And it is the grace of God that spares Isaac, this story. That's the traditional way to preach it. It um, doesn't work for me. I don't know if it works for you. Um, And because that doesn't work so well these days, um, I've noticed, you know, I did a little online reading about this, and I noticed that contemporary preachers, I assume liberal preachers probably, um, seem to resort to essentially rewriting the text in order to find some good news in it. In this convention, the command to sacrifice Isaac must come from inside Abraham's head or else from an evil spirit or demonic force. God doesn't come into the picture until the end of the story when God intervenes to stop the sacrifice. One um, Protestant preacher uh, puts it like this, but there is God the lifesaver, and there is Abraham trying his best to do the right thing to be faithful, to appease the one he thinks is God. There is Abraham so much like us, shaped more by his fears than his loves, confused by all the conflicting voices he hears, tricked into thinking the powers of the world speak for the love of God. Now, I can understand this reading, but there are some problems with it, too. And the the one I'll mention is that the Bible text utterly contradicts it. I mean, as far as this coming from inside Abraham's head, or it being a messenger or angel, God often does use angels and messengers to communicate. In fact, often with Sarah and Abraham, God sent an angel to tell Sarah, three men actually, and the angels and the guys of men, to tell Sarah and Abraham that they'd bear a son. And like that, but in this story, it is God, the text says, that gives the command. God gives the command, and the angels stop the, stop the sacrifice. The angel is, the, is the, 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 the force, the agency that intervenes to stop the sacrifice, and it is the angel that renews the covenant with Abraham. Now, the rabbis, the ancient rabbis noticed this, And in their midrash on this text, they speculate that this command was so appalling and horrible that the angels refused to carry it out. They were happy to stop the sacrifice, but they refused to command it. So some um, contemporary theologians, many of them feminists, are just as appalled by the angels, and they've denounced this story as reactionary, patriarchal, anti-child propaganda. Rita Nakashima Brock famously calls it a text of divine child abuse. And while I don't know if we can dispose of it so easily in the context of our biblical faith, I have to say I have a certain affinity with Brock's point of view. I mean, I respect her and others for refusing to soften the story by misreading it. For daring to name the horror implicit in it, the depiction of a God who is not just mysterious and inscrutable, but is actually dangerous and potentially lethal, a God who commands his chosen servant, and I'm using the male pronoun on purpose here, I don't always for God, but a God who commands his chosen servant to step outside all decent fatherly feeling and abandon all ethical considerations, commands, and then commands him to prove his faith by killing the very person who embodies the promise. That the affirmation of the promise, the, the, the proof of the faith is by killing the promise itself. And, not to mention a human being, a son. But one reason we can't so easily set the text aside, I'm afraid, is because of its centrality to the biblical tradition. This isn't a marginal text. You know that it's so important in Judaism that it is read at all of the high holy holidays, and it's referenced in the prophets, and it, the, it, references to it are throughout the Christian New Testament where Jesus is compared to Isaac. So instead of turning away from this text in disgust or dread, or twisting it into a template for Christian atonement theology, I propose we spend the last couple minutes um, looking at the Jewish interpretations from the Midrash, wherein the rabbis explore this story in all its psychological and emotional depth. That's the best way I've found to talk about it and think about it. Now, summarizing the implications of this story, the great Jewish theologian Martin Buber notes that it's part of the basic character of God that he claims the entirety of the one he has chosen, takes complete possession of the one whom he addresses. Such taking away is part of his character in many respects. He promises Abraham a son, gives him, and demands him back in order to make the gift afresh. And for this son, he remains a sublime terror. So is it not appropriate, taking up uh, Buber's last comment, to go beyond Abraham's perspective to consider the impact of this event on Abraham's and God's victims? What about Sarah, the mother who longed so deeply for Isaac, who acted so ruthlessly, we might say, to advance his welfare? Sarah is never heard from again after the Akedah, for in the very next chapter of Genesis, she dies. There is a long-standing Midrashic tradition which maintains that Sarah dies in a state of shock, overwhelmed by the terror of the Akedah. If this is so, was Sarah's mortal shock a response to God's cruel caprice, to her husband's devastating betrayal and murderous intent, or to her son's physical abuse and psychic destruction, or was it simply that as an old woman her heart could not withstand the shock of the story itself? Did her heart shatter as she pictured her beloved son, found on the stone altar underneath the sharp knife held in the strong arm of his own father. Some Midrashic traditions hold that Sarah's fatal shock was caused by her realization that Isaac's death was barely averted. Had the angel arrived a fraction of a second later, his throat would have been slit. And what about Isaac himself? Is it not true, as Martin Buber says that for Isaac, both Abraham and Abraham's God, ever after, remain a terror. Although described as rich and successful and blessed by God, Isaac remains a dim and shadowy figure in the Bible, overwhelmed by his legendary father and mother, and his equally legendary younger son Jacob, and even more obviously overshadowed by his strong, resourceful, and sometimes deceptive wife Rebekah, who along with Jacob trick old blind Isaac into bestowing his blessing on Jacob, Rebekah's favorite, rather than upon the elder son Esau, whom Isaac loved best. But then again, in Rebecca's defense, God, Yahweh, talked to Rebecca and not to Isaac. When Rebekah heard the prophecy, two nations are in your womb. Two separate peoples. One people shall be mightier than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Isaac was nowhere around. God told this only to Rebekah. So Isaac was in the shadows. And it wasn't so hard to deceive Isaac that Jacob was Esau because you see, Isaac was blind. Why did Isaac lose his sight in old age? Well, we might say there's nothing surprising in this so many centuries before cataract surgery. But within the Midrash, there is another explanation. The rabbis teach that Isaac's eyes became dim from seeing. For when Abraham bound his son on the altar, the ministering angels cried, and tears dropped from their eyes into Isaac's eyes and were imprinted on his eyes. And when he became old, his eyes became dimmed from seeing. Now, in explicating this text, uh, the Jewish contemporary Jewish uh, Midrash scholar Aviva Zornberg explains what Isaac experienced in his youth, helplessly shackled, his eyes alone free to pierce the heavens. This is imprinted forever on those eyes. The Akada leaves uh, him an after image, a kind of inverted residue, which only in old age assumes its original blinding quality. So you see, the rabbis dared to enter into this text in all its terrible implications, and by so doing they diagnosed Isaac's trauma-induced blindness. Now, blindness-induced by witnessing horrific events is recorded by ancient Greek historians as early as 490 BCE, but it's been medically documented more recently by psychiatrists treating warfare victims. Could these psychological insights be the reason the Akida remains so relevant and compelling and has exercised such a terrible fascination for thousands of years? I told you that, um, that I wasn't going to resolve this story by appealing to themes of Christian redemption, but I will end by reminding us all of Jesus' desperate lamentation on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is this not the cry of Isaac, the victim of the Akhidah, as the knife was suspended over his naked throat? But scriptures do not record that Isaac made an audible cry. Perhaps his voice was strangled by his terror and it was left to Jesus to give voice to Isaac several centuries later. And if we have ears to listen, we may hear Isaac calling us out to us still in our torture rooms, on our battlefields, in our execution chambers, in all those God-forsaken places where we sacrifice our victims to whatever idols of violence and death we may worship. And yet, yet, this terrifying story ends somehow with God's renewal of the covenant with Abraham, with the restoration of the promise that through Abraham, the world will be blessed. What do you make of this word of grace at the end of this harrowing story? You'll have to decide that for yourselves. I have no words left. I stand before this text and before you all in terror and amazement, and the rest is silence.